This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. It's time now for Edmund O'Brien as... Johnny Dollar. Hello, Dollar. This is Carter down at Tri-State Insurance. Yeah, I've heard of it. How are you, Bill? Fair. Listen, we have a vice president down here who has an idiot cousin selling insurance for us in New York City. Well, he's done it again. You call me for advice or sympathy? He just sold a $15,000 policy covering a pair of antique pistols on a trip from here to a fire in Boston. Well, some of those old weapons are worth it. Well, these must be. That's why I want you to see that they get there. According to this Leonard Bonney, who brought the pistols this far from England, somebody tried twice to steal them. That we learned after he bought the policy. You take the job? Okay, Bill. And uh, when can I talk to this Bonney? He's at the doctor's, but he'll be back in my office in an hour. Doctor's? Yeah. The last time the thugs jumped him, they put a knife through his arm. <laughs> Edmund O'Brien in a transcribed adventure of the man with the action-packed expense account. America's fabulous freelance insurance investigator. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar. <laughs> expense account submitted by Special Investigator Johnny Dollar to Home Office Tri-State Insurance Company, Hartford, Connecticut. Attention, William Carter. The following is an accounting of my expenditures during assignment on the Queen Anne pistol matter. Expense account item one, $1.75 cab fare for my apartment to your office, where I was introduced to Leonard Bonney, a tallish, badly proportioned man whose pasty complexion was just a shade darker than the sling that supported his left arm. Well, it's a pleasure, Mr. Dollar, a pleasure. Thanks. You, uh, you've had a pretty rough go of it. That's right. And it's the truth that I'm glad to see somebody else taking the responsibility. You uh, might tell Mr. Dollar about these attacks on you. Oh, yes, I'd be happy to, Mr. Carter. The first time was in Liverpool before I boarded ship to come across. They came out from between two buildings near the wharf. Three of them. They handed me a whack on the bean, and that's the truth. And before they could lay another hand on me, I raced off. Did you have the pistols with you? Oh, no. And I didn't have them in New York when another gang attacked me. They almost killed me with that knife. The pistols are here, Dollar. Would you like to see them? Yeah, I would. Here. Here, I'll uh, open the case. The box he opened was leather-bound and satin-lined. Two pistols nestled in it. Graceful flintlocks with ten-inch forged barrels upon which were engraved a coronet and a name so faint that I couldn't make it out. They're from the 18th century. They're worth 10,000 pounds as a collector's item. Where do they go? Oh, to an antique gun shop at 272 Medford Street in Boston. The proprietor's name is Arthur Worthing. He's a British chap. He wears spectacles. You'll recognize him. Will you be coming with me? Me? <laughs> I don't think no. I've had enough. I'll stay here and wait word for Mr. Carter that the pistols have got their safe. Oh, no. I've had enough. <laughs> The rest of the rundown was given to me before I left the office. Leonard Bonney had been hired as a messenger by the seller in London, who had explained the value of the guns, but had not mentioned any potential danger of attempted theft. With that information and the pistol case tucked into a corner of my luggage, I made arrangements to leave. Expense account item two, $9.75 airfare and incidental expenses between Hartford and Boston. The address on Medford Street that Bonnie had given to me was on the fringe of the retail district. 
was a sign, and there were a few dusty weapons in the window. Hello, are you Arthur Worthing? Uh, yes, yes, I am. My name's Dollar. I've been hired by the tri- uh-huh. 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 Uh, Mr. Bonney telegraphed me to expect you. The package, sir. I see you have the package. Yeah, I have it. Uh, this is a day I have long anticipated. Uh, there. Ah, there. Two masterpieces from the shop of James Freeman Norwich. Ticker 1705. Sir, are you a fancier of arms? Nothing antique. Oh, that's a pity, sir, a pity. Fascinating study. These pistols have quite a remarkable history. Fashioned during Queen Anne's reign and gave service during one of Europe's blackest eras. Yeah, they're pretty. But I like mine with less history and more shocking power. As might be supposed, sir, the English gunsmiths prospered during those stirring times, profiting by the constant demands for muskets and pistols to supply the good Queen's armies in Flanders. Ah, is that right? Well, I have a paper for you to These sign. weapons, sir, rode through the campaigns at the belt of an officer raised near Norwich. And if the truth were known, sir, more than one murder has been committed not only by them, but because of them. Uh, tell me, sir, were you followed? Not that I know. Uh, if I could get your signature on this release, I Oh, can... just a moment, young man. I, I believe that the assurance policy purchased by Mr. Bonney is in effect until the pistols rest in the possession of the purchaser. Is that not correct? You are not the buyer? <laughs> well, unfortunately, sir, a price of $20,000 is a great deal too dear for me. Well, who is it then and where? A Mr. and Mrs. Jack Rollins Bride. Bride. Okay. Address? Uh, yeah, yes, I'll jot it down for you. Just a moment. Uh, oh, eight Victoria Drive. Yeah, there you are. The lodge on the left flank as you approach it from the east. I think I can find it. Now give the pistols bride and tell them that either Mr. Bonney or myself will contact them at the earliest opportunity. All right, I'll get back to you by phone. <laughs> Good afternoon, sir. I have a package to deliver to either Mr. or Mrs. Bride. Are they at home? Uh, yes, sir. I'll take it to them. Well, my instructions are to give it to them personally. Who is it, he? A gentleman with a parcel for you, madam. A parcel? My name is Dollar. Are you Mrs. Bride? Yes. Well, here are your pistols for Mr. Worthing. Well, come in. Mr. Worthing, I don't understand. Well, maybe your husband knows about it. Yes, perhaps that's... Oh! Oh, no! Madam! What's the matter? <laughs> You can't. You can't. What's the matter, Mrs. Bride? Well, oh, heavens of hell. What's the trouble? Who is this man? What is... Oh. Uh, uh, take Mrs. Bride to her room, dear. No, Jack. I want to know. What does it mean, Jack? What does it mean? Be quiet, Estelle. I'll take care of this. Come uh, along, Mrs. Bride. I'll help you to your room and get you a bromide. Now, what do you want? Now, I don't want anything but your signature on this paper, acknowledging your receipt of the pistols described therein. You'll get no signature from me. Here, let me see that. Hey, watch it, will you? Leonard Bonney. He's here in America. That's what he said his name was. I bought the pistols from Hartford to a man named Arthur Worthing. He sent me to you. Who's Arthur Worthing? Well, I took it that you knew one another. He's a dealer in antique weapons. Yes, of course. Get out of here. Take this fake form and take your pistols. Go back to your Mr. Worthing. 
Your bluff won't work. Now, listen, man. I don't believe that Bonnie is here. I don't think he's still alive. Now, get out of here. I didn't bother to argue with him because as far as I could see then, he was either terrified, crazy, or both. With the pistols, I took the shortest route back to Arthur Worthing's gun shop on Medford Street. I should have saved myself the anger I'd built up to let go at Worthing. The place was not only locked, it was empty of antique weapons. And Arthur Worthing's sign had been replaced in the window by another which read, Office or Store for Rent, Inquire Number 13 Groves Building. I decided not to. Expense account item 3, 70 cents, day letters of Tri-State reporting my lack of progress. And expense account item 4, same as item 2, transportation back to Hartford. My phone was ringing when I unlocked the door of my apartment at 10 that night. Johnny Dollar. Bill Carter, Johnny. Did I interrupt something? Yeah, I just got in. Just came through the door. That's crazy business in Boston. What do you make of it? Well, the man called it blackmail, so I guess that's what it is. But what reason there was for using me, I don't get. Unless they figured Bride would get violent. I've been trying to reach that Bonnie. You left a phone number. Huh. What'd you get, the city pound? No, some woman with an accent so thick we can't understand each other. Oh, forget it. Bonnie just made it up. He was lying in his teeth about everything. Do you have the pistols? Yeah, but not for long. I'm bringing them down to your vault in the morning. Good. Stop by my office. Uh, aren't you curious about this thing? No, not even intrigued. I don't want any part of it. That was only half true. I didn't want any part of it, but I was intrigued. Later, after a shower and over a highball, I took the pistols out of their case and looked them over. Except for the possibility that they were the tools of blackmail, I could find nothing to make them worth $20,000. But under a strong light, I did make out the name engraved on the barrel that I hadn't been able to read before. It was Bride, as in Mr. and Mrs. Jack Rowland's Bride. And the date behind it was 1704. I wondered what there was about something out of the 18th century that could send a 20th century woman into hysterics. The next day, I saw the pistols put under lock and key, started to work on another case, and try to forget the whole thing. But I was reminded of it again by the caller who was waiting for me in the corridor outside my apartment that night. The bride's butler. I hope you pardon my intrusion, sir. You must know why I've come. Well, I can guess. I shan't take up much of the time. But if I could just talk to you. All right, we'll go inside. Oh, thank you, sir. Sit down. Now, stand, sir. Could you possibly give me the pistols, Mr. Dollar? No. But why not, sir? Well, the main reason is I don't have them. Bride didn't seem to want him when I tried to give them to him. Oh, but he did, sir. He bought his putting his signature on the form which described them. It would have become an admission that he had received them. What's he afraid of? I couldn't say, sir. He told me that he wouldn't be able to answer for the consequences if I failed to bring them back. What does that mean? Mr. Bride is a very violent and sudden man. Look, I'm through with the case. I turned the guns back to the company that insured them, and he can get them by going down there and signing that release. I beg of you, sir... Get them tomorrow morning and give them to me. I can't. Possibly because they aren't there. <laughs> it felt like a beastie. Then I got a look at the vial in his hand and the needle. His expressionless face watching me became diffused and was streaked with flashes of red. I tried to reach for the face, but it swirled away and out of sight. 
I took one stumbling step after it. That was the best I could do. Turn you to the second act of yours truly, Johnny Dollar, in just a moment. But first, we Americans have a valuable heritage, a heritage of individual freedom that includes the freedom to worship as we wish at the church or synagogue of our own choice. By attending church regularly, we can gain the moral and spiritual strength to meet the many problems which confront us today. Help support your church and attend regularly with your family. Now with our star, Edmund O'Brien, we return you to the second act of yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Better now, aren't you? Now, hold on now. Don't slip away again. Wake up. <coughs> That's better. Mm. I'm Mr. Bonnie. Remember me? Mm. Darling, mm. none of that. You're all right. I'll put mm. you on your bed. You're in your flat. Uh, where... Where'd you come from? It's oh, a good thing. I came from somewhere. Mm. I've been playing touch and go with you since six o'clock. Uh. First you'd come two, and then you'd go again. Which time? What What time is it? Past nine. Yeah, you drink some of this. I uh, I looked for some tea, but I couldn't find any. I'm, I'm not too handy at making coffee. Uh, there, is that hot enough? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, now, what happened to you? I don't know. Dope just jabbed me in the arm. Who was it? Bride? Oh, come on, leave me alone, will you? Oh, I no, you don't. <coughs> I've had enough of this. You stay awake. Come on, now. That treatment went on for another 45 minutes. That and the coffee. From the bed, I could see that my apartment had been torn to pieces. I was too sick to be angry about it. When I could sit up and put my feet on the floor, I realized without surprise that Bonnie's arm was no longer in a sling. In fact, there was a Webley automatic in his hand. Oh, that. Well, the surgeon said I wouldn't need to anymore. Oh, you are a lying... Now, stand up now. Come on. Did he get those pistols? Oh. Right. Whoever it was tore up your flat looking for them. No, he didn't get them. And you aren't going to get them either. Oh, yeah, now. You've got a net on your shoulders. You use it. Where are they? You'll have to do more than wave that automatic around to get them. They're in a vault downtown. What do you want? A share for yourself? Look, it was your idea to insure those things. Bride wouldn't receive them, and the company wants to protect them until he does. You must have known that. Why did you insure them? Well, it was Worthing's plan. I told him it was too tricky. You're in a fine mess now. I've got to take you to him. Why? I can't do anything. Don't you ask so many questions. You just come along. <laughs> He gun-muzzled me out of my apartment and into a car. 
If I'd been in better shape, I might have been able to break away from him. But with my system still full of dope, I didn't have either the will or the energy for a try. I only half remember the trip, but the end of it was a shabby hotel within earshot of the harbor in Boston. Connie, I've brought Mr. Dollar. Uh, capital, Bonnie. Capital. Come in. You're white as a ghost, Mr. Dollar. Are you well? Yeah, and you don't help. They, uh, they put a needle into him trying to get the pistol. Oh, what a pity. What a pity. Sit down, sir. Sit down, please, by all means. Uh, did they get him? Well, he says no, and if he's telling the truth, we're in a mess. In a mess, Bonnie? He says the pistols are locked up at the insurance company in Hartford. Well, now, is that the truth? I don't see why that should be hard to believe. Now, what do you say to that? I told you it wouldn't work. You and your complicated plans. Now we've lost the old thing. Nonsense, Bunny, nonsense. Why, actually, the pistols are of no consequence whatsoever. Well, they were important right enough in London when we first we talked about coming here with them. Of course they were, Bunny, but now they've served their purpose. The brides have seen them. You have spoken to them on the phone. It only remains for you to collect the money. The end of the past, Bunny. Well, I think we need it. Well, Mr. Dollar... It suddenly occurs to me that I have spilled the beans, as you yank so quaintly put it. I've told you the truth. I don't want to know the truth. Why don't you keep quiet, Worthing? That's a good idea. Until I get out of here anyway. Bunny, stop him. Look, I have no place in this. Just leave me alone. Bunny, stop him. Or everything is lost. All right, me bucko. Come on back. Get away from me. Come on. You don't feel so good. I hate to make you feel... Well... That's right now. Back in the chair. What do you want? You want me to know what's going on? I do. Blackmail. Yes, of the grossest sort, sir. We shall be handsomely paid by the bribes to keep secret a two-year-old murder of which they are guilty. I don't care. Why don't you keep quiet, Worthy? Well, Mr. Dollar. If you expect me to be surprised, I'll have to disappoint you. What else could it be? But why were you stupid enough to think that he'd sign that release? Yes, I shall have to admit that my sights were too high. But a signed admission, it was such a devilishly clever scheme, I was forced to have a try at it. And why keep me involved in it? Because you are a witness, so to speak. Now, be patient, sir. After being dragged into the lives of people I don't know and don't want to know, after being drugged and knocked around by your gunman? Enough of that. And now, Bonnie, the hour to strike has come. I will meet the brides. Here. Oh, by the way, let me have your Webley. Well, what about me? You, at the same time, will be at the bride residence waiting for them to return and make the initial payment of our $20,000. The contest is won, Bunny. Oh, I hope you're right, Worthing. It's been a long one. Yes, it has. A splendid quest. <laughs> He made a phone call to the bride, and Bonnie left. Worthing concentrated on the Webley automatic while we waited, and I concentrated on my head. By the time the bride arrived an hour later, I was almost able to stand without staggering. Well, 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 well. Mr. and Mrs. Bright, Lake of Norwich. Our paths at last cross. Please come in, come in. I am Arthur Worthing. You don't know me, but I assure you that you will. Oh, you remember Mr. Dollar? Yes. We should hardly forget him. Yeah, you're not alone there. I'm afraid I have most distressing news for you, Mr. and Mrs. Bride. I shall be unable to make deliveries since Mr. Dollar has gained possession of the pistols and steadfastly refuses to part with them. He is a veritable thorn in my side. Do you expect 
sympathies from us, Mr. Worthing. Well, indeed, I expect nothing of the sort. No more than your uncle, the Duke of Pembroke, would have expected from you had he known your true thoughts before you had him murdered. Are you lecturing, Worthing? You're planning to profit from the same death. Yes, quite a profitable death to everyone but the poor Duke. The estate fortune to the brides and to the others of us who nibble at the edges, a small share. Even you, Mr. Dollar, earned a penny or two. Cut this short, will you? It's a little too thick for me. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Bride, you both understand the terms that Leonard Bonney and I have decided upon. We, in turn, agree to maintain complete silence in regard to your part in the murder of the Duke of Pembroke between 6 and 7 p.m., 8 October 1948, at which time, according to knowledge shared by us, a killer hired by yourselves did shoot said Duke to death. How can we be sure if, as you tell us, Dollar refuses to give up the pistol? Mr. Dollar. Leave me out of this. Hmm. An unfortunate situation, but one of minor importance. The theft of the pistols has become, according to your plans, the generally accepted motive for the murder, in view of their extreme value, and since they did indeed disappear. But who? Who would correlate them to the true story? Oh, Jack, we could never be sure. Quiet, Esther. My word will be kept. But, Bonnie, I readily admit I do not know. The proof of your guilt lies with him, and he may decide that he needs more money one day. But the negotiations at hand. The cost to you, $20,000. $5,000 to be paid tonight to Bonnie, who now awaits you at your residence. The rest within the next seven days. Oh, I didn't see how it's going to be possible. Oh, come now. Surely, rather than sacrifice the gracious life the Duke's fortune is affording you... I don't know. The time is so short. We'll manage it still. We must be away. We have the 5000 Bonnie will be waiting for but you. Now Mr. Dollar has heard the story. What good is buying your silence? But first he knows, then someone else knows, and someone else... I... In heaven's name, Bride, do you want the police to descend upon us? Then we all would be lost. All but Leonard Bonney. I'm going to the police. I want them to know. Stop it, Estelle. Take her now and go meet Bonney. Come along, Estelle. We go home. Convince her, Bride, that there is no reason to fear Dollar's knowledge. I have my own plans for him. Worthing's success made him careless. Calling his orders to the Bride, he was a quarter turn away from me. As soon as the door closed, I moved. As far as I was concerned, it was a toss-up between being a good citizen and phoning the police or using my head and leaving. I decided on a compromise, an anonymous report. I leaned over him to double-check his name and started through his pocket. His inside coat pocket gave me a week-old receipt for the weapons with which he dressed up his phony gun shop. His wallet held some money, but no identification. I patted his side coat pocket. They were cluttered with the usual men's debris and nothing else. But I patted the empty pockets again, and down at the bottom of the right one, I felt a thin, rectangular object. It was inside the coat lining. I got my fingers into the seam and ripped. The object was a card set into a plate of transparent plastic. It said, Arthur T. Worthing, Inspector, CID, Scotland Yard. The devil. Hey. Hey, Inspector Worthing. Uh, uh, Oh. I I, I say, that, 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 that was rather... Here, here, try some of this. Thank you. <coughs> well, I, I must say that 
You're an extraordinary ally, Mr. Dollar. It would help, you know, if your allies knew they were allies instead of pigeons. You want to try and get up? Uh, not yet, I think. A vicious pummeling. <laughs> but more about that later. Suffice it to say that I've been posing as a blackmailer for so long that I scarcely know what I am myself. I couldn't shed my disguise in front of you until the final details were arranged. What is this approach of yours? Approach, sir. Oh, this crazy scheme. Here, come on. Take my hand. Oh, thank you. Not crazy, sir. Intricate, perhaps, but I did obtain a confession, didn't I? With you as a witness. During the investigation in England, no effort was enough to swerve the brides from their story of their murder. I had to turn criminal to meet them on a common level and gain the truth. And uh, did you have in mind stopping the brides before they commit another murder or after? Sir? That's an odd question. Sir. Oh, no. Not since this is making sense. Not since you baited bride with the idea that Bonnie was the only one that could prove them guilty of murder. Impeccable truth, Mr. Dollar, since it was Bonnie they hired to commit their crime. If the brides were apprehended at the scene immediately after they had murdered that miserable little cutthroat known as Bonnie, well, then, they'd be hard-pressed to find a valid reason for not confessing to the original murder of the Duke, would they not now? I think you soften the wife up to the point where she'd fell. It's my job. I believe you've hit the nail squarely on the head. We'll phone the police to go there. I think you hit the same nail on the head when you palled up with Bonnie and talked him into coming over here with blackmail in mind. Yes, yes, you're right. This has been a personal matter. The Duke of Pembroke was my friend. As I said, nothing could be done in England, so here I am. Unofficially, of course. I suggest now that I phone the police, don't you? Here you are, driver. Keep it. Uh, thank you, sir. Good night, you. Good night, young man. Well, no sign of the police, Dollar. They'll arrive quietly. We'd better get up to the house. We dropped our cab a few yards down from the bride address. When we got there, we took the driveway. There was a light in a room I spotted the last time I was there, a library. We angled off toward it, but before we reached it, a look I tossed over my shoulder stopped me. Behind us in the street, I could see a swarm of uniformed figures slipping silently toward us. They were close, but not close enough. Now, fine. Now, come to it. Look, I'll give it out. I'll come back to England. You'll never be bothered by me. Come on, take me in and come to the rear. Come on, you guys. Let's go this way. Inspector got what he wanted. The murder of the gunman, Bonnie, and the Justice is supposed to move in straight, formal lines. When that kind misfires, I guess it's cricket to go devious. He brought a victim as well as a motive clear across the Atlantic to set up the playoff scene. Expense account item five, same as number two, transportation back to Hartford. Item six, miscellaneous. You'll have to admit I deserve something for what I went through. $150. Expense account total, $365.35. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar.
Yours truly, Johnny Dollar, stars Edmund O'Brien in the title role and is written by Gil Dowd with music by Wilbur Hatch. Edmund O'Brien can soon be seen in the Paramount Pictures production, Warpath. Featured in tonight's cast were Ben Wright, Bill Conrad, Dick Ryan, Jeanette Nolan, Dan O'Herlihy, and Tyler McVeigh. Yours truly, Johnny Dollar is transcribed in Hollywood by Jaime Del Valle. This is Bob Lamond inviting you to join us next week at this time when we will again bring you Edmund O'Brien as yours truly, Johnny Dollar. Every Saturday night, Americans from coast to coast play Sing It Again. Do you? Well, if you don't, you don't know the fun and excitement you're missing. Not to mention radio's largest cash award if you can name the phantom voice. There's music on Sing It Again. Music with Alan Vale, Bob Howard, Judy Lynn, the Riddlers, Ray Block, and his orchestra. There are contestants from all over America, formed by Dan Seymour. And there are prizes. Prizes galore, plus that special jackpot prize we mentioned earlier. So, stay at home. Play at home on Saturday nights when over many of these same CBS stations, Dan Seymour says, it's Sing It Again. Stay tuned now for Von Monroe's Caravan, which follows immediately on most of these same CBS stations. If you met a stranger on the street who offered to give you $4 for three, you'd be pretty skeptical. But when Uncle Sam makes the same offer, you can take him up on it and be sure you're getting a square deal. By investing your money in United States savings bonds, you'll get that extra dollar profit when the bonds mature. Buy your bonds through the payroll savings plan where you work or the bond-a-month plan where you bank. CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road, and those who travel it wind up in the gutter of the prison of the grave. They dressed in red, white, and blue and jumped from an ancient biplane at 3,500 feet. Twice a day, every day, and nobody worried. Until five million bucks went along just for the laughs, and death went along for the ride. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Birds on the Wing. It had been the kind of quiet, workless week that speaks well for human beings and their relations with one another. It doesn't do much for a private detective's bank balance. So when at exactly noon, a telephone call had jerked me out of Chandler's new novel, The Little Sister, and a voice edged with anxiety had dangled a hundred bucks worth of negotiable bait my way, I had snapped at it. But then I wondered if I'd done the right thing. Because it had been my must Hattie Pembroke, guardian of the millionaire thrill-seeking screwball Paige Pembroke. And now, an hour later, I left the sunlight and felt my way into the gloom of the carefully tucked away Hollywood bar where she had suggested we meet. 
When I could see again, I spotted her at a corner table. That the old girl would be the other side of 50 and doing a little too much to disguise it, I had expected. But that she would be drinking her whiskey neat, I hadn't. When I approached her and introduced myself, Marlo, she started to come right to the point, much... but didn't quite make it. Oh, how rude of me. I'm sorry. You're probably dying for a drink. A waiter. Well, frankly, no, Miss Pembroke. I'm not exactly oh, dying. Oh, no, no, no. I know you men in your early afternoon appetite for a friendly drink. There's no harm in it. Matter of fact, I've already had had a small drink myself. No fooling. A waiter, and this gentleman's order, please. Uh, yes, ma'am. What'll it be, sir? Scotch and soda, if the lady will join me. Oh, no, no, I couldn't. Really? Well, all right. <laughs> Scotch for me, too, waiter. Johnny Walker. Yes, now, Mr. Marlowe, let's get down to business. Have you ever been to Oxnard, California? Uh-huh. Good, because that's where my nephew is. Also, it's where the Calumet Valley County Fair is being held. Really? Whatever that may be. Most important, it's where you can probably find out what kind of trouble Paige is in. You see, the poor boy is... Down just... to his last five million bucks. Now, I'm sorry, Miss Pembroke. I don't think I want the job after all. Now, one moment. Why not? Well, frankly, I hope you'll excuse the reference to actual living persons, but your polo-playing, motorboat-racing, daredevil nephew is a jerk. <laughs> I know. Paige Pembroke the third is an unmitigated ass, a virile egomaniac, an idiot who's never done an honest day's work in his life. Wait, what is that dream? Right here, ma'am. Oh, thank you. Now, Mr. Barlow, sit down and drink your drink. When I referred to my nephew as a poor boy in trouble, I was only trying to avoid saying all this. Oh. Your health, sir? Yes. Uh, well, my health. Now, your next question. Since I obviously share your sentiments about my nephew, why all this concern over him, correct? Uh, close. Right. I want to help Paige Pembroke, Mr. Marlowe, because it's my job. My, shall I say, bread and butter? All right, say it. You see, I'm executor <laughs> of his estate, which my brother, Paige's father, left for him. Well, as such, I get $20,000 a year until Paige is 35, another six years. But if Paige should die, disappear, or be committed to any kind of a public institution... Hmm? Institution. Oh. Before then, the entire estate goes to charity, and I go find another job. And specialized jobs like handling $5 million estates are hard to come by these days, huh? Now, Mr. Marlowe, this letter here is all you have to go on. It was postmarked last night from Oxnard. Read, read. Oh. If you want your precious nephew to keep on being healthy, you'd better come and get him at once. The three of us had a nice little act going here at the Calumet Valley County Fair before he joined us just for laughs. We intend to have a nice little act going after he's gone. And one way or another, he's going to go. A friend, huh? Yeah? What? what do you think? Oh, it's five to one. It's nothing more than a woman spurned. Very young woman, Miss Pembroke. So you might be wasting $100 sending me up there. Then you'll go. Good. Yeah, but only because of my bank account. Mr. Marlowe, there'll be another $100 for you if and when you get all this straightened out. Now, now, call me at my home, Beverly Hills. Crestview 5412. 4124? Uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh. As soon as you find out what's wrong. Oh, uh, oh Mr. Marlowe. Yes, Miss Pembroke. On your way out, signal the waiter for me. Will you please... The ride to Oxnard was a pleasant but frustrating hour and a half drive along the kind of beckoning sun-scrubbed Pacific shoreline that always demands to know why you have to work for a living. The ride through Oxnard to the sprawling county fairgrounds located at a semi-retired airport was a fast ten minutes. 
So all in all, it was a little better than three o'clock. There was still a measure of boyish bounce in my stride when I started past the prize cows and plain and fancy leghorns and headed for the midway, looking for the act Paige Pembroke had joined just for laughs. But it was four o'clock and I had checked a half a dozen death-defying numbers before I was standing in front of a banner Columbus could have used for a sale. It said I was getting warm. In iridescent orange cloth on black, it read, The Plunging Comets. Taffy Star and Midge Maynard on wings of death with fearless Eddie Knapp at the controls. The greatest parachute act in the world, admission free. Five and nine p.m., north end of the midway. Come one, come all. <laughs> yeah, this had to be it. At the north end of the midway, just outside of a sagging, weather-peeled hangar, I found the World War I biplane that went with the plunging comets being mothered by a mechanic who didn't have grease on his face. And beyond that, on an inside wall of the hangar, were the parachutes used in the act, each on a separate hook, its owner's name carefully block-lettered on a card tacked above, Taffy, Midge, and Eddie. And then, scrawled in black crayon, the name I wanted most of all to see, Paige. Lost something, mister? The voice went with the woman and the woman with the axe. At the top, there was what used to be called the boyish bob sticking out of a white aviator's helmet circa 1918. Then a bright red leather jacket opened wide at the throat. Black riding breeches, black boots. The color of hair that stuck out and said this one was taffy. I asked if you lost something. Have you? Well, come to think of it, yes. Six foot two, eyes are blue, and carries a big, big checkbook. <laughs> Seen one around? Maybe. Why? Who are you? Name's Philip Marlowe, the millionaire's friend. I'm a yacht salesman. Here's my card. Never mind your card or the very funny joke. Now, what do you really want? Paige Pembroke, before he breaks his neck in your act, or isn't he in it yet? I don't remember. Now, your point. What is it? A letter you could have written. A letter that says Paige is in trouble. Where is he? Goodbye, Mr. Marlowe. Take it easy, Wings. Ah, you wouldn't want to hold that on somebody who's only trying to help Brother Paige, would you? I mean, what reason could you possibly have? Other than five million bucks, you might want for your very own. Why, you... I said goodbye. What's the matter, Taffy? You having problems? Yeah. This Mr. Yacht Salesman is Emmett Kingston, head of the fair's midway. And you'd be surprised how popular he is with the concessionaries. Now are you going? What else? Good day, Miss Taffy, Mr. Kingston. You know, sometimes it works. Lead with your chin, ride with a punch and watch for your opening. And I figured I'd try it just that way. So ten minutes later, when Emmett Kingston, who was carnival people from checkered vest past ornate, watch fob the high-button shoes, and shaped like a bowling pin, left Taffy and started trundling down the midway, I went after him. When he stopped in front of a lunch wagon, I stopped too. And when he went in, approached the man playing pinball machine, who was maybe five foot four, and from where I stood conscious of it, I was still behind him. At the pinball machine, a stranger with a thin face that wore a nervous toothpick was also watching the little man's game. Oh, boy, Doc, it's preaching. So when I moved closer to the trio, my face turned away from Kingston. Nobody well, seemed to mind. Well, Jack of many trades, I see. What? Oh, oh, Mr. Kingston, uh, how are you, sir? Fine, Hershey, just fine. 800 more is jackpot, Doc. Come on, come on. Uh, you wanted to speak to me, Mr. Kingston? No, Hershey, nothing important except about last night. Uh, uh, last night, sir? Yeah. You were working late for a parachute rigger, weren't you, boy? Or uh, am I wrong to consider two o'clock in the morning an odd hour for you to be folding these silks? Hey, Doc, you're going to shoot it, aren't you? Which? Of course she is. Go on, I'll shoot for the uh, gentleman. Uh, yes, sir. Hey, 2,000... 
3,000, 4,000. Hey, that's great. Now, do that again with your last ball, Dr. Uh, uh, was there something else, Mr. Kingston? Yes, uh, she... Why were you near the shoots at that hour? And uh, don't bother denying that you were because Eddie Knapp saw you there. Well, son? Well, I... I was there to double-check the riggings, Mr. Kingston. Hey, look, I'm sick and tired of Midge Maynard complaining about the way I pack her chute. It's a stupid excuse, just trying to cover the fact that she's losing her nerve. Uh, hey, boys, don't ignore me. Reach out for the jackpot. Shut up, you, and get going. Uh, Rosie, uh, get this uh, stumble bum out of here, will you? Sure, Mr. Kingston, whatever you say. Oh, and it's social, huh? All right, all right, Doc, I'm going. With my own free will, too. But I could stay if I wanted to. Ah, uh, she, you were saying? Well, just this, Mr. Kingston... Uh, Mitch Maynard and Taffy Star fighting because of that Pembroke fellow, or, or because Eddie Knapp is crazy about Taffy, is one thing. But but bringing me and my work into it is different. Meaning? The parachutes Midge and Taffy use are identical. In the act, both girls jump from the plane wing at the same time. But Midge always gets scared and opens a chute sooner than Taffy. So Taffy is on the ground long before Midge. But this has nothing to do with the way I rigged the chutes, and I think... All right, you... all right, Hershey. Nobody's blaming you. I... Uh, say, you... Yeah. You uh, wouldn't be trying to sell another yacht in here, would you? Just waiting for the finish of an exciting pinball game. Is that all right, or is it time to call Rosie again? No, no, it's quite all right. We're leaving. Uh, you try for the jackpot. Go uh, on, her sheets. About time for the five o'clock show. Oh, yes, Mr. King. Hmm. Only 40000 to go. <laughs> oh, it's the first time I ever hit the jackpot. Oh, that's pretty good, Mr. Marlowe, considering that it wasn't your nickel you won on. Oh. Now that you mention it, Mr. Pembroke, it wasn't. Which should take care of the introductions, yeah. huh? Yeah. And that leaves very little. But something. But definitely. Marlowe, you can tell Aunt Hattie from me that at the moment I don't need a watchdog. And when and if I do, I'll go to the nearest city pound for one, not to a private detective agency. <laughs> I told myself it was foolish to slam the door on my way out. So I slammed the door on my way out. I started north down the midway toward the open stands and the five o'clock sharp performance of the plunging comets. When I got there, the act was already underway with the silver biplane taking off. Eddie Knapp and White at the controls, Taffy in her red jacket and parachute crouched on one wing, Midge Maynard in blue jacket and shoot on the other. Then as they slowly gained altitude, high button shoes himself took over the PA. They did it up well. And by the time the plane was at about 3,000 feet, every pair of eyes was riveted skyward. And an expectant hush thicker than winter fog had settled everywhere. Drawn up tight, arms close into their sides, they jumped. Specks in the sky growing bigger as they fell. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 feet, and then, from Taffy's shoot cloth, long and colored, a huge flag rippling in the wind from the end of a long rope. The flag seemed to rise above her as she fell, until the slack was gone, and then suddenly her shoot opened, billowing. And then Midge, another flag rippling from the end of a long rope, and then, then the flag drifting free. Midge's shoot not open, Midge plummeting down, down to the hard ground. The thud slammed home all the way around, kicking hard at every stomach. 
A minute ago, a girl, very much alive. Our smashed still body. Someplace near me, a woman cried. There was a bitter, sick, sweet taste in my mouth as I headed to the hangar where I'd first met Taffy. At the moment, I figured the guy who packed the parachutes was a good man to see. When I got there, the only one present was Emmett Kingston. Stop right there, boy, and tell me straight and fast just who you are. Philip Marlowe, Los Angeles private detective, Mr. Kingston. You can prove that? Sure. Here. Here's my business card, state license, county permit. I'm working for Paige Pembroke's aunt. She wants his nibs kept out of trouble. Which has what to do with your being here now, Marlowe? Here at this hangar, I mean. Close to where the parachutes are kept. I'm not sure, Kingston. I've only got a hunch. A hunch that Midge Maynard's death was no accident. Yeah, I got more than that already, Mr. Detective. I've got proof. Oh? You see this flag? It's uh-huh. the one that came off Midge's chute. There's a long rope attached to it. Yeah, I know. I saw the act. Pulls the chute open after the flag's flown a while, right? Sometimes, but not tonight, Mr. Marlowe. Tonight it couldn't. Why not? Wasn't it attached to the chute? It was. One end of the chute release cord, the other to the base of the flag. What went wrong? Nothing. Nothing, Mr. Marlowe, except that the long rope on Midge's chute was cut in two by a very sharp knife. In just a moment, the second act of Philip Marlowe. But first, Sunday nights on CBS. The biggest bargain in show business today. Skelton, Bergen, and Benny without spending a penny. Amos and Andy, Eve Arden, Corliss Archer, 4A's four-star entertainment. The Family Hour with its Hollywood stars and stirring dramas. The Contented Hour with its musical stars and brilliant form. Horace Height with his rising stars. Eight great shows heard on most of these same CBS stations every Sunday night, with the ninth, Jack Benny, being heard on them all. Hear them all this Sunday night. Now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Birds on the Wing. When Midge Maynard's grim accident turned out to be grim a murder, I left Kingston and headed for a phone to call my client. Everywhere the chill of the viciously spectacular death lay like a soggy blanket. At the exposition office, I found the phone and finally got through to Hattie Pembroke. She listened up to the word murder and then, between gasps, insisted on coming out to help me. When I hung up, I turned to see that the pilot, Eddie Knapp, had been standing in the door listening. He looked sick. What's it to you, mister? What's what to me? Midge. The long drop she took out there. In Pembroke. I heard you say Pembroke. What do you got to do with him? Just a minute, fella. I'm not sure it's any of your business. It's my business, all right. The kid gave me a big grin up there just before she jumped. And I watched her fall every inch of the way. So did everybody else. Look, I know how you feel, You Eddie, don't have any you... idea how I feel. Don't try to kid me. That mob out there loved it. That's the only reason they come to watch, the hypocritical buzzards. You got a finger in this pie. and angle all your own. I'm going to find out what it is. Take it easy, Nap. You're talking yourself into something real silly. Yeah? Listen, ever since that louse Pembroke showed up here, there's been trouble brewing. Now Midge is dead. She was a friend of mine. Best friend I had. Aren't you pulling a switch, Buster? What happened to your red-hot passion for Taffy Star? Oh, you nosy... Come here, you jerk! Look out my arm! Yeah, bus boy, and unless you want to take off with a busted wing, stand still! Now get this, Eddie. I've got no beef with you yet. In fact, we might even be on the same team because I want Pembroke out of here just as much as you do. So cool off! Who are you? A private detective named Marlowe. I got news for you. 
Midge fell because her chute was fixed. She was murdered. Murdered? You heard me. Where? Where's Hershey? He packed the chutes. Have you talked to him? No, I can't find him. You mean he's run away? With that filthy half-pint cycle? Now listen, for your own sake, Eddie, leave Hershey to me and the police. You know where he's staying? No, no, I don't. In town someplace. But didn't he ever tell you where? Come on, think, Eddie. Well, yeah, he told me he had a buddy in town. Some guy who runs a pool hall. I didn't pay much attention. That's enough for a starter. I'll find him. And keep a lid on your temper, Eddie. I'll see you. As I crossed the grounds to my car, I looked back once at Eddie Knapp standing in the office door, rubbing the shoulder I twisted for him. I hoped he'd stay out of circulation until I got back because the barnstorming flyer was charged up like a high-tension wire. The way he felt there'd be sparks no matter who he touched, Taffy, Pembroke, or Lyle Hershey. But my immediate worry was the location of the lambing parachute packer, so I drove into Waxnard, found a phone booth, and went through the book calling pool parlors. I finally hit pay dirt at a joint called Pindy's. It's 212B Street, upstairs in the back. 212B Street was an apartment, second floor rear over a boarded-up fish market. I went up the stairs to the half-open door with my hand around my 38. But the shooting part was all over. Because Lyle Hershey was crumpled in the bedroom door with the slovenly abandon that violent death always has. From the look of the puddle of blood under him, he'd been that way over an hour. I started backing out. Just as someone else started up the stairs. So I flattened myself against the wall beside the kitchen door and waited. Lyle. Lyle, it's Taffy. I... Come on in. Take a good look, Taffy. What are you doing in here? Where's Lyle? It's a great act, baby. Holds water like a duck's back. What do you mean? That wherever there's murder, there's also motive. And you've got it, Taffy. Lots of it. Me? What are you talking about? Maybe he's dead and maybe you killed him. Keep him quiet because maybe he fouled up Midge Maynard's parachute on your orders. Consequently, he had you over a barrel. On my orders? You're out of your mind. And maybe you had to get Midge out of the way because you objected to Paige Pembroke and his idle millions honing into the act. Objected so strenuously that she was doing something about it, such as sending threats to his Aunt Hattie. Let's face it, baby, it fits. But not tight enough, Marlowe. Oh, Paige, darling. Taffy, I got worried when you didn't come back to the car, so I hey. decided... Don't move, Marlowe, or I'll shoot. Pembroke, if you got any sense in that gold-plated skull... I'll show it, Marlowe. I stood outside and listened to enough of your crackpot theories to know you're nuts. I don't need any advice from you at this point, so keep your long nose out of my business. Now listen, you half-brained dope. Oh, now you just stand there like a good little boy. Taffy and I are leaving, and don't try to follow too fast. Go on, Taffy, outside. I'll follow you. So long, detective. I let him go. Spent 20 useless minutes searching the almost bare apartment for any kind of an answer, but came up with nothing. Hershey's body at my feet convinced me there was nothing in Oxnard for Marlowe. The sooner I dumped the whole mess into the laps of local law and order, the better. So I kicked out the ten-cent lock on the flimsy door and went down the stairs. I cut through an alley to the street and started across to where my car was parked. And I was bracketed by a pair of headlights on a sleek Nash convertible. Hey there, Marlo! Marlo, what you doing here, boy? Nothing. Even that's an exaggeration, Kingston. What about you? I thought you had a show tonight. I certainly do, but the police don't give a hoot about that, boy. No. They insisted that I bring the rest of Midge Maynard's parachute harness in for investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, get in and come along, will you, son? Maybe you can help me out. Okay. I want to see the police myself. Oh, is this Midge's stuff here? That's it. Don't mind holding it, do you? No. You know, this is a waste of time, boy. All they have to do is pick up Lyle Hershey and they'll get all the answers. They'll have to pick him up, all right, but he'll give him problems, not answers, Mr. Kingston. Lyle Hershey's dead. He was but- murdered. You see, Lyle... Yeah, yeah, I just came from his place. Somebody shot him. Great suffering sardines. 
Well, uh, that means there's another killer. And still on the loose. I knew I shouldn't let him do it. Let who do what? Why, Taffy's going to give an air performance tonight. They pulled me into the grounds just as I was leaving and told me. That uh, Pembroke fella's going up in Midge's place. You mean those two showed up out there? It doesn't make sense. Well, Pembroke's got plenty of nerve in his own shoot, so I guess... Shoot? Yeah, he's... uh... Wait a minute, wait a minute, Kingston. Stop under that streetlight, will you? Why, uh... What is it, Marlowe? What are you looking at? Sure, sure. Red smudges on the inside of these straps. There's something wrong here, Kingston, but I can't quite peg it. Say... Kingston, what time is that performance going to start? Wait, nine o'clock. Five minutes and five miles to go. Come on, boy, turn the heap around and rump on it. We got a killer to catch. Swing out in front of the hangar, Kingston. Hurry. It's empty. They're already out on the runway. Yeah, there's one parachute still on the rack. Why, that's Eddie Knapp's shoot, and he never goes up without it. So who's at the controls of that plane out there? I don't even have to guess. It's Eddie Knapp, all right, but he figures a suicide doesn't need a shoot. But... Pile out, Kingston. It's as far as you go. I'm taking over from Brian, here. What are you talking about? Come on, about? move. Get out. They're turning around now. Yeah, he's going to make us run back this way. So long, Kingston. Here he comes. Brian, what are you doing? Come back. I waited until there was no possible chance for a miss. Then I headed the car straight into the path of the plane, pulled the hand frontal out as far as it would go, and jumped. was easy. The plane sort of stumbled over the car, rolled up on its nose and stayed there. Quick work by the volunteer crash crew took care of that. A box of bandages took care of the collection of minor cuts and bruises all around and the Oxnard police took care of Eddie Knapp. Everything had come out more or less even, except my client, Hattie Pembroke. She showed up at the finish line slightly on the bias, which no doubt was her normal late evening state. Also, she was as full of questions as an insurance adjuster. Now, young man, I paid you a substantial sum of money for this day's work, and therefore, as your employer, I'm certainly entitled to a comprehensive report of the entire business. And I insist... All right, all right, Hattie, Hattie, whoa. (laughs) I'll run through it once more, and that's all. Now, look, first, the threatening letter you got was written by Midge Maynard because she was afraid Paige was going to break up the act, you get it? But the real screwball was Eddie Knapp. He was crazy about Taffy's tar and insanely jealous when your nephew and his money showed up. Knapp decided if he couldn't have Taffy, nobody else would, because he'd kill her. And yet, Midge Maynard was the one who got killed. You catch on quick. Knapp killed Hershey because he was afraid Hershey had seen him tampering with the shoots. You get that? No. No. On second thought, Milo, maybe you better submit a written report tomorrow. Yeah, with adding machine and clothes. Now, look, Hattie, it's not hey, that... Hey, Milo. Milo, Paige and I want to apologize. We treated you pretty badly tonight, and, well, you did save our lives. Business is business. Yeah, that's right. He was hired to do a job, dear, and he did it. I'm only interested in one thing, Marlowe. How'd you know it was Eddie Knapp? Well, nobody had a really good motive for killing both Midge and Hershey, so when I realized the shoots had been switched, I knew Midge's murder was a mistake. And there it was easy. How'd you find that out, Marlowe? Red smudges on the inside of the harness shoulder straps. Red that had to come from your leather jacket there, Taffy. The one Midge always wore was blue. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Well, Hattie, write the detective a check so he can go. That's the best idea you've had to date, Pembroke. And include on it the price of a repair job on Kingston's car, a new tweed suit to replace this one that lost knees and elbow on the runway when I jumped. But also, don't forget the bonus you promised for keeping your job alive, Hattie. Oh, just a minute, Marlowe. As for you, Pembroke, the only reason I'm not filing an assault and battery charge against you is that... You've got great grounds for a countersuit. What do you mean? This! Bless 
you, my boy. Mail me the check. Good night. Well, a few informal cups of coffee at the Oxnard Police Headquarters cut through most of the paperwork. But at that, it was after two when I finally picked up my car and drove the inland highway for home, past dark, quiet farms, where down-to-earth people made down-to-earth livings and slept at night. Yeah, the countryside was full of them. So it was with a real sigh of relief that I finally opened the door to my apartment. And look forward to some peace and quiet. Hello, Mr. Marlowe. Uh, aren't you Gracie Allen? Yes. Well, how'd you get into my apartment? Well, you see this key? Yeah. Well, it didn't fit, so I opened the door and walked in. Yeah, well, that figures. Uh, what can I do for you? Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you're a famous detective, and I think you're just the man to handle a very important case for me. Oh, really? Well, I'd be very happy to, Gracie. What's your problem? Well, you see, Mr. Marlowe, our sponsor won't let my husband, Sugarthroat Burns, sing on our program. Mm -hmm. And I want you to investigate the possibilities of another radio program George can sing on. Mm -hmm. And then our sponsor will realize he's wonderful and let him sing on our show. Oh. Well, I'm sorry, Gracie, and the next time you pass my house, I'll be very grateful. Oh, thank you, and I'll be looking for you, too. Goodbye. Goodbye. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Lois Corbett, Rita Lynn, Don Randolph, Junius Matthews, Jack Moyles, and Jimmy Eagles. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It started with a kid hawking papers on Hollywood Boulevard and moved from there to a house full of hate on a quiet street, a blonde liar on ice skates and a corpse in a burned-out shack, and it all wound up right where it began, in the heart of the kid on the corner. Two music programs that make your Sunday afternoon listening a delight and a pleasure are the Symphonette and the Coraliers. The Coraliers sing popular and semi-classical songs in stirring style. The Symphonette brings you excerpts of great orchestral works. Hear the Symphonette and the Coraliers tomorrow and every Sunday, as well as Sammy Kay's Sunday Serenade, now heard exclusively on CBS. All of these outstanding music programs are heard on most of these same CBS stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows immediately on most of these stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.